The sermon text this morning will be Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever <clears throat> resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is normally one of those sermons that you have an associate pastor do. You know, Christianity and politics, you're bringing together two things that you're not supposed to speak about in public. You know, I, I kind of feel like you know, when the kids were young and we had to uh, give them medicine, and a lot of times the medicine didn't taste very good. And, and so you had to kind of hold them down and, and pinch their mouth open to get the medicine in. Uh, they probably even knew it was good for them, but they did not like the way it looked, smelled, or tasted. And yet they needed it. I kind of feel like that's somewhat analogous to the sermon. We, uh, you know, this idea of obeying the government. Right, so 9% of, uh, in a survey taken in 2014, 9% of the citizens of the United States felt <coughs> as if uh, the government can be trusted to handle international business. 9% felt confident. 9%, right? 20% felt that they have literally no confidence in the government. So here we're reading a text about obeying the government. And uh, sometimes it may feel like some medicine you don't want to swallow. Uh, but it's a truth that we need to read and a truth that we need to hear. Uh, it's very, very important. You know, we've looked at in these chapters in Romans how uh, Paul spent 11 chapters on the nature of salvation. That by the mercy of God, we have been saved through faith. We've been made right with God, reconciled, forgiven. It's incredible. And then, of course, we took that pivot in 12, where then he says, okay, in light of God's mercy, how then should we live? And uh, he's been telling us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, he's saying the same thing when he says, live according to the will of God. Remember, we learned the will of God is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. People want to know what it is. Paul's telling us. It's to think rightly about yourself with humility. It's to serve one another gladly with the gifts that God has given to you. It's to love genuinely those in the church, and it's to love those outside the church. So when you have problems with people outside the church, you're not to retaliate. So what he's doing is he's saying that the mercy of God revolutionizes our relationships with God, with ourselves, with one another, and with the government. And that's he's just moving now to this this, how do we relate to the government? Now, this passage will not explain every question you may have about church-state relationships, but it does speak 
uh, quite clearly to how we ought to view the government. I really have two questions that I want to answer. Uh, one is, how do we view the government? How do we view the, How ought we to look at the government from this passage? How does it inform us? And then secondly, how do we respond to the government? How ought we to respond? So the first question is, how do we view the government? And the second question is, how do we respond to the government? Now, if you're a rugged individualist and libertarian and you want small, 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 small government, I probably won't make you happy today. And if you're kind of big government, you're socialist and you're left-leaning, I probably won't make you happy either. So maybe on that we can find commonality that you both don't like me in terms of what I'm going to say to you. Uh, but, but we're going to try to carve out a path that's true to Scripture, even though it may be uncomfortable for us. So let's answer the question, how do we view government? How do we view government? Okay, there's two ideas here. I'm going to combine them into one sentence. We are to view government as instituted by God for our good. So it's instituted by God for our good. And that's what we're going to see here. Uh, let's look first that it's been instituted by God, even with authority. Uh, look with me in verse 1. And, and I would just ask you to answer this question, how do you view government? Uh, when you think of the government, do you think of it with fear or distrust or disdain? How do you view government, this idea of government? Look what Paul says in verse 1. <clears throat> he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Now, I'm not going to talk about being subject yet. I'll do that in the second half of the sermon. Uh, I first want to explain, what are these governing authorities? that he's speaking about. Some think it's spiritual principalities and earthly rulers, but most scholarship thinks, no, it, it's, just, it's just governing authorities are the human governments under which we live. So for, Rome, for Paul, it would have been Roman. It would have been Roman rule. It would have been the emperor and all the delegates. For us, it would be inclusive of local magistrates, state authorities, federal authorities, up to the president. I think it could be teachers, policemen, uh, those people in postures or positions of authority. These governing authorities, they may be good, they may be bad. I mean, remember, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, the epicenter of Roman rule. Uh, Rome was hardly democratically elected or, or formed and duly elected and fair and balanced. They were idolatrous, they were blasphemous. The Roman government would put them to death in just a number of years. And so, so these governing authorities that he's speaking about are just those human governmental agencies that he lived under as a Roman citizen. Uh, so these are the governing authorities. God's not sanctioning the action of every, every king and every queen. We just realize that God is instituting this authority in creation. Now, now listen, you see that three times in the first four verses. He says that all authority has come from God. He says that God has instituted authority. And he even says that authority has been appointed by God. God has always exercised his providential rule through human government. You go back to Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 28, that the, the man and the woman, they were to subdue, they were to rule the earth. God gave the man and the woman authority to steward over God's creation. It's always been this way. God's providential rule is exercised through human governments. You see, God's, God's sovereignty is exercised that way. In, in Daniel chapter 2, we read, 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. God's doing his work through human government. In Daniel chapter 4, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. We even have the words of our own Lord before Pilate saying that you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you from above. He is recognizing Roman authority that would be exercised in his own crucifixion. So he sees that God has established this authority. Now I want to remind you, this authority is not absolute, it's derivative. It comes from God, but it is an authority that is given to the government. And I want you to see that it's throughout creation. God works in structures of authority. You see it in the home with children to parents. You see it in marriage, wives to husbands. You see it in churches from members to leaders. You see it in the state from citizens to kings. You even see it in the cosmos, that the planets revolve around the sun. This isn't a statement of quality or value. This is that God has chosen for his purpose to exercise a sovereign rule through human agencies, even bad ones. You may not like the current administration. You may not have liked the last administration. Uh, but what we're to take away is that the Christian is never the anarchist. The Christian is never subversive. In fact, because God has instituted authority, to, to rebel against authority is to resist against God himself. Against God himself. So, so Christians understand the authority, imperfect as it may be, and you can imagine how much harder this would be to hear if you lived in Iran or North Korea, Saudi Arabia. It would sound altogether different. But there it is. It's been instituted by God. Uh, but, but God has instituted government with authority for our good. And you see this in, ver in verses 3 and 4. Look at 3 and 4, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This is so interesting. He is saying that the government is God's servant. He uses that word deacon, our word, or diakonos in Greek. It's, it's God's servant. He uses the same word that we speak about God's servants in the church. Not only that, but in verse 6, he says God's minister. God's minister. And that word is used in the Old Testament for the workers of the temple. So he's saying that those who work in government are actually serving God by stewarding the authority that he has given to them. And, and why is he doing this? Well, you know, what are they to do? What is the purpose of the government? It's for our good. It, it's for the good of creation. Now, Paul doesn't specify exactly what all the government responsibilities are to do good. But we know from Genesis that it was to bring order to a creation so that it might flourish. We think about health, we think about protection, we think about security. You know, we think about those things that build up the welfare of the nation. That the government is to do good. It's to bring about a flourishing of society through bringing about a peaceful and civil environment. Is this not what our fire departments do? 
when your house is on fire, you're able to call and they come, the police. They fight terrorists. They prevent chaos from within or anarchy. They prevent chaos from without that is securing our, our borders or protecting against foreign powers. I mean, you just think about the air traffic controllers alone. 15,000 people at 300 locations governing and stewarding 87,000 flights a day. Hey, you take that away. What happens to security of travel? So the government has been instituted. How about the child labor laws that were instituted back in the late uh, 20, 19th century? I, I, I mean, the, the government exists by God. God has instituted government with authority so as to bring about our good, our good. They build roads. They do tasks that we could not do. But not just do they do good, they also avenge wrong. Now this is important, particularly with the last passage, uh, or the passage from last week. And we were told in chapter 12, 17 to 21, you do not avenge the wrongdoer. That you are to not personally retaliate against those who have treated you unlawfully. Why? You think I won't be taken care of? Well, no, he has tasked the government to do that. That's when he says that the government has been given the sword. It's not going to be used in vain. In other words, the government has been given the right to fine or imprison or, or bring about punishment. The government does more objectively than what we can do if we're the ones injured. Now, you notice that it doesn't bear the sword in vain. That sword is more than having the right to exact punishment. Uh, that sword could mean even bring about what we would say is the death penalty, that they have the right to execute on behalf of the good of the country. Now, this is a very debatable point. It causes no small amount of consternation with people. Traditionally, this text has been seen to support that. The word sword actually means death in chapter 8 of Romans. This idea, of course, goes all the way back to Genesis 9-6, this idea of retributive justice uh, where the life that is taken, so that life will be required. Now, it doesn't mean the state has to do this. God did not put Cain to death after he murdered Abel. It's just simply saying they have the right to do that. They can exercise that right. So, so here you have this government uh, that is been given authority by God uh, both to do good and to punish wrongdoing. Now, do you value the government? Are you thankful for it? Do you, do you see the government as a steward, a servant of God? I mean, please don't make any mistakes here. I am not naive to the brokenness of our government. I don't deny it, and I don't defend it. I just want to remind you that bad examples don't necessarily mean it's to be done away with, or it's to be seen with such disdain. Now, for some of you, you may struggle with this authority that the government's been given, because you've been treated poorly by someone in authority, maybe a religious authority even, or maybe a police officer. Or maybe some law that's gone against you. I, or, or you've been harmed by a teacher or some person in authority. And they've used their authority in a way that has been to their benefit and to your detriment. And I'm sorry for that. That, is, uh, that makes this kind of passage very, very difficult. 
it makes it taste like bad medicine. And, and I, I grieve for that. I really do. And there are many people who will testify, even to religious authorities being abusive. But I want to remind you that, that the principle stands. That there are bad examples, but it doesn't negate the proper use of authority. Uh, for the rest of us who haven't experienced this, we still struggle with authority. I mean, we don't like to be often, you know, that good old American know-how. You know, don't tread on me. You know, you can have my gun once you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. I mean, this idea of question authority. Th th there, is a, there is a really kind of a, that American rugged individualism works against the understanding of this text. I just want to point out to you that, uh, that it's not an issue of national problem. It's really a human nature problem. Uh, right? I mean, even from the garden, Adam and Eve, we see in them this rebelling against authority. You know, if you think about the nature of the, that picture of the garden, God says, from every tree you can eat but one. You got them all. You don't have 50%, 60 You got all of them but one. And that's the tree that they want. I mean, what you see is that the mother of all sins is this arrogance and pride that I don't want to be told what I can't do. I, I don't want any restriction on what I want to do. To think you would give someone everything but one, and that's the one they want. And, it, and Ad, the children of Adam and Eve struggle in the same way now. You see it in your own children. No is one of the first vocabulary words that they learn. That they don't want to be told what to do. They rebel against being instructed. You see it from the very beginnings of life. So the issue isn't so much with good or bad government. I would say the issue is right here. At least it begins here. It begins with our own inability to admit our creaturely status before a sovereign God who has established for his purposes a government to try to lead us and to try to bring about civility and peaceableness among us. This is why we need the gospel. This is what the Christian faith teaches, that we have to be born again. We have to be born again because the desire to rebel is within us. There's no ideology or no formula that we're going to be able to follow. No, we have to be born again. The idea of being born again is, is this idea of God taking out a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh, a, a, a heart that is submissive to God. This is why at the, at the, you know, really the gate to the Sermon on the Mount is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. That poverty of spirit is not a financial issue, it's a spiritual issue. We realize, God, we are lost without you. We will constantly rebel against your good authority if you don't change us. And so it's through faith in Christ, recognizing that our problem in being reconciled to God has to be handled outside of ourselves by one who can come and who can take upon himself our sin and our shame and our guilt and, and, and give us new life, give us new birth so that we're born both of water and spirit and be reconciled to God. So the first thing, how ought we to view government? Well, we ought to view government as, as good. It's for our good that God has divinely instituted them with authority for our good, for the promotion 
uh, of peace and tranquility so that the gospel ultimately will go out. Now, I would, I would just give a warning here to those of us in authority that there is a stewardship that we have. It may be in your home. It may be in the workplace. It may be in the church. You may be in a position of authority in your, in your workplace. You need to steward that well. All authority is derivative. You have authority given to you by God, and you will be accountable. You know the elders of this church will be. He tells us that in 1 Peter 5. He says you'll all stand before the chief shepherd. There's an accountability to that. I read it from uh, R.C. Sproul. He once gave an address at the inaugural, um, he gave the inaugural address uh, for the governor of Florida. And interesting what he said at that address. Let me read it to you. He says, Good sir, today is your ordination day. You have received your mandate to govern, not from the will of the people, but from Almighty God, who himself establishes government and calls you his minister. Not the minister of the church, but his minister as a guardian of the affairs of the state. And I remind you that you will be judged by him as you in terms of how you carry out your duties. We all bear that, those in authority. There will be that day. So, it, so this passage isn't so much about kind of bristling against the authority of the government. We're responsible. We're accountable to God. How are we stewarding that, that authority that we've been given, even if it's only in your home? How are you stewarding it? Well, that's the first question then. How do we view government? We view government as instituted by God, given authority for our good. Then how do we respond to government? This is what the second half of the passage speaks about in verse 5. How do we respond to this government? Look with me in verse 5. He says, Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now this is an interesting verse here. It kind of summarizes the first four verses. How ought we to respond? Well, it says that we're to respond in subjection or with submission, that we are to be subject to governing authorities. And there's no exception here. This isn't for the Christian or for the non-Christian. It's for all of us. All of God's creation are to be in subjection. Now, to be in submission, you know, I almost, I love the word and I hate the word. Uh, it, the, the word is taken on so many barnacles, it, it cannot even make headway in the water. It's burdened by bad freight. Submission simply means to yield oneself. It means to stand under. It, it, this word is used often in military contexts where an officer, a uh, subordinate officer, has an attitude of respect for his senior officer and it implies obedience. But it's not a blind obedience, it's not a subjection. You see that he says, be subject, not simply to avoid wrath, but out of, for the sake of conscience. Th this idea, our conscience is that human faculty that helps to discern right and wrong. That we're to obey government, not simply because we're afraid of what they can do to us, but for the sake of God. We understand God has placed them in authority and they will be responsible to God. And so we can trust God even though they may be imperfect. You see this even in the home. And so this, this isn't a blind obedience. It's a discerning obedience 
recognizing their role in our lives. And Paul wants us to understand that our obedience as God has set up certain hierarchical structures for the betterment of society, and we're to understand that and live within that. Now, I know many of you may be thinking, is this just absolute submission that we give? Well, no, I don't think the word, except in reference to our submission to God, there's ever to be absolute submission. You know, in Scripture, it's clear that submission is unto God, even though it's applied to human government. So when human government command something that God prohibits, that we are obliged to disobey. So when government commands something God prohibits, we are obliged to disobey. When the government prohibits something God commands, we are obliged to disobey. And we see this throughout Scripture. You see it in Exodus chapter 1 with the Hebrew midwives. They were commanded by Pharaoh to put to death any child born, any male Hebrew child born. Well, they didn't do it. They defied the, God, the command of the Pharaoh because they feared God. You see it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel. They were commanded to worship the statue, and of course they rejected that idea. And they, didn't, they were thrown into the fire for it. They came out, not even smelling of smoke, but they were thrown into the fire. Others didn't come out of the fire. You have it with Daniel being commanded not to pray, but he prays anyways, thrown into a pit of lions. You even see it in the apostles. When the apostles are commanded by the Sanhedrin to not preach the name of Jesus, here's what they say. They say that we will obey God and not man. We must obey God and not man. That's kind, of the, that's kind of the litmus test that we obey God in all things. So, so exercising civil disobedience comes as the government commands what God prohibits or the government prohibits what God commands. Now, Charles Colson, who uh, was an advisor to Richard Nixon, spent some time in jail, came to faith in Christ, wrote about civil disobedience, and I thought he nuanced things uh, very, very well. He said this, he said, rightly exercised, civil disobedience is divine obedience. But, but listen, to how he, listen to how he nuances it here. He says, but when Christians engage in such activities, it always must be to demonstrate their submissiveness to God, not their defiance of the government. Let me read that again. When Christians engage in such activities, it must always be to demonstrate their submissiveness to God, not their defiance of the government. So our civil disobedience can only be when we're trying to walk in obedience to God. We may not like the way they choose the limit of speed that you have on 5-4. We may not like some of the laws, but but we are called to obey them unless it precludes us from being obedient to God. Do you see the difference there? Because a lot of people take issue with wanting to disobey the government because they make these foolish laws. They're instituted with authority to make laws that as long as they don't command us to do something he prohibits or they prohibit something that he commands, then we're called to obey. Remember, this text is not speaking to when we ought to disobey. It's giving us a principle here. It's not speaking to us about how or, or when do we exercise civil disobedience. It doesn't speak to that. But I, I want you to recognize that if ever called upon to disobey, 
we want to be mindful that it's in the sight of God that we do this. You know, even before the Declaration of Independence, John Adams wrote to his wife Abigail on July 3rd, 1776. And here's what he he wrote. He says, you will see in a few days a declaration setting forth the causes which have impelled us to this mighty revolution and the reasons which justify it. In the sight of God and in the sight of man. He knew, they knew, most of them, many of them were deists, but, but he knew that their actions in rebelling against the British government was going to be done in the sight of God and they would stand accountable. And he even wrote in, a, in another letter about the consequences that might be severe against them and that that would be from God. So we want to be very mindful when God has instituted an authority for our good, even bad governments, that we want to be mindful before we rebel against such authority. So there you have, how do we respond? We respond by obedience, by being in subjection. But secondly, we respond by paying taxes. Look with me at verse 6. In verse 6, he says, For because of this you'll also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, and revenue to whom revenue is owed. Now listen, taxes have been with us since the beginning of time, and they've never been liked, just to let you know. Uh, They've always been rebelled against. It was often a means of controlling people and controlling nations by taxation. In fact, Tacitus was a Roman historian in the first century. He was a Roman senator, actually. He even wrote about Christians in Rome who were agitating against paying taxes because of the extortion that many tax collectors would exercise. Tax collectors had great freedom of charging what they wanted to charge, often charging more so they could pocket more. And and the Christians in Rome were beginning to rebel, rebel against that. And so Paul says, you pay your taxes. You pay all your taxes. Now, how do you feel about paying taxes? Do you often think, I I hate paying taxes? We like fire departments, though. We we like police departments. But but do you rebel because you think, well, they're going to waste the money? Or you rebel, perhaps, because, well, my tax dollars are going to unbiblical means. They're going to unbiblical events. And that's why I don't want to pay taxes, or I fight paying taxes. Well, let me remind you that Jesus Christ himself told Peter to pay a toll tax. A tax that Jesus knew that money would go to a Roman treasury. And that Roman treasury would pay for soldiers to occupy a a land not their own. And that treasury would pay for blasphemous worship and the building of pagan temples. Jesus said pay the tax. Why? Our responsibility isn't managing of how the tax dollars are spent. We can do that through vote, but they will be responsible to God for how they manage that money. You're responsible to God to pay the portion of the taxes that are by law. So we're called to pay taxes, even though we may not. In a way, God has freed you from being overburdened about where is every dollar you would never know anyways. But even if you tried to know, he has relieved you from that burden. Your responsibility is to God. If the taxes are mismanaged, God will deal with that. See, this whole idea is built around the premise that you really do trust God's sovereign. That, that he will make all things right. That he has given to us a son. This prince of peace upon whom, upon his shoulders, a government will rest. A perfect government. So we, we do act with obedience to the government. We do pay our taxes. We also give honor to the government. 
And notice what it says in verse 7 there. It says, <clears throat> pay to all, pay to all what is owed. Then respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. This is really important. You know, the, um, to pay honor and to pay respect doesn't mean we don't engage in public discourse, even disagree. Uh, what I think, how does honor look to our elected officials? Well, I, I think honor looks like speaking with graciousness and truth but graciousness and truth. It means representing your opponent's view correctly and not setting up a straw man to show how foolish he may look. Uh, to honor someone would be to not speak ill of them, uh, to not go after identity politics or character assassinations or name-calling. Uh, that that it, would be, it would be, if you can't say anything, then honor them with silence. Say nothing. Now, I realize there's a place for political satire, but you know we've crossed that line. You know, in social media, the past administration, uh, to read some of the things Republicans wrote, and then to read some of the things in the current administration, the Democrats write. I mean, clearly, we're not giving any honor or any respect, but Christian is different. This is one way in which our renewed relationships with each other and our enemies and now with our government, it all shows that we're of a different kingdom. It shows that we've been changed. It shows that we've been born again because we don't get in the same type of kind of grenade dropping on the other side. In fact, when Paul wrote to Titus, who was establishing the churches on the island of Crete, he said, remind them. That is, the pastor is to remind the people. That's me reminding you. So I'm doing what Titus did 2,000 years ago, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. When he says all people, he's not saying every single individual in the world, as if you could do that, but to all kinds of people, Democrats, Republicans, independents, people that just step out of the whole political fray that we're to be kind to all, that we're different that way, that we show honor, we show respect. Uh, and, then, and then fourth, and another way that we respond is to be obedient and to pay our taxes, to give honor, but also to pray for them. You may say, well, I don't think I can pray for them. And I would say, well, that would only show you how much you need to pray for them. I, I, I mean, we need to pray for all. And not just your party and your people and your policies, but we're called to pray for all people. You know, when Paul wrote to Timothy, who was leading the church in Ephesus, he said the same thing, similar to what he told Titus. He said, first of all, now we don't know if that's first chronologically or if it's first in terms of importance, but first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Listen to what he says. He says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That sounds so familiar to Romans chapter 12 too, where he says that the will of God, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, the same kind, this is the will of God that we pray for them. That we pray for their humility. That we pray that they grow in awareness that they're going to stand before God one day. That, that we pray that they rule well. Not just so that it benefits us and our policies, 
that we may have a peaceable land in which the gospel can thrive. And that's the end goal if you continue reading in 1 Timothy 2. It's so that the name of Christ can go forth among our own families and friends and communities, but to the nations. So we have to pray for When was the last time you prayed? Well, if you're a Republican, when was the last time uh, you prayed for the senators and the elected officials in our states that aren't Republican, that are Democrat? Or the president, if you don't like the president, when was the last time you prayed for him? Or when Obama was president, did you ever pray for him? Did you ever lift him up and ask God? He has great responsibility to bear when he stands before God. God have mercy on him. God have mercy on my own use of leadership, even within this church. So we, we, pray, for, we pray for these leaders. And, and then fifth, I would say that we do good as citizens. Listen, we are called to do good. You see that in verse 4. The government exists to promote an environment in which we can do good. We, the citizenry, of this nation are to do good for others. We're to help the weak. We're not to look to the government to do all that. We're to be doing this, to help the weak, to care for the infirmed. You know, this is the tension that we live in as Christians. We're citizens of the kingdom, but don't use that as an excuse to not be involved in your culture and your community. Don't take the high road and say, well, I'm a citizen of the kingdom, and all this world is going to be ultimately destroyed, and so... I'm just stepping out and being separate. Please do not use that as a, we're called to do good right here, to do good to one another. At the same time, I would say don't use your, your citizenship in heaven as a means of we're going to bring now uh, a new majority, a religious majority, and we're going to rule the land in some form of theocracy. And that's not what we're speaking about either. There's a tension here we have to feel. Martin Luther kind of sums it up this way. He says, a Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. In other words, as a citizen of God, we are totally free to love God and live a holy life. And yet he says a Christian is also an utterly dutiful man, servant to all and subject to all. We live in that tension. I can't resolve that for you. It's intended to be a means of our sanctification. So, so we, we're subject to government, we pay taxes, we give honor, we do good. Uh, and then last, we trust God. At the end of the day, your membership, your, your citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven. The nation will never be equated with the kingdom of God. Your political party will never be related to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is wholly different. We are called to trust God. The Christian is never the doomsdayer. It, it, the Christian never thinks that, that we're going to roll the tide back and we're going to institute Christian reforms and change the nation. People are born again by the Spirit of God, not by a political party. And at the same time, we never have to fear the government, even if it continues to slide left or slide right, whichever way it's like, we don't need to ever fear government. God is sovereign. We can be calm. We can breathe easy. Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth see themselves, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is anti-authoritarianism. We don't want God. So what does God do? 
He who sits in the heaven laughs. That's what we ought to do. We ought to laugh. Our God reigns. Let the nations tremble. The Lord holds them in derision. He says, now therefore, O kings, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what we're called to do, take refuge in God. We live under the rule of the government. We submit to them, but we don't fear them. We fear God. You know, John Newton, writing a letter on his political views to a friend, wrote these words. John Newton, of course, was the great uh, slave trader turned pastor, wrote Amazing Grace, lived in uh, the late 18th century England in some very, very difficult times, as we read about when I preached on Wilberforce. He said, the whole system of my politics is summed up in one verse. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. The times look awfully dark indeed, and as the clouds grow thicker, the stupidity of the nation seems proportionally to increase. If the Lord had not a remnant here, I would have very formidable apprehensions. But he loves his redeemed children. Some are sighing and mourning before him, and I am sure he hears their sighs and sees their tears. I trust there is mercy in store for us at the bottom, but I expect a shaking time before things get into a right channel before we are humbled and are taught to give him the glory. The state of the nation and the state of the churches both are deplorable. Those who should be praying are disputing and fighting among themselves. How many professors, that is, professors of faith, how many professors are more concerned for the mistakes of their government than their own sins? It's a good corrective to us. We spend so much time criticizing, perhaps, the government and their failings. We haven't given time to thank God for it. We haven't walked in obedient subjection, not trusting that they will do perfect. When I got married to Carol, trying to lead her, uh, she now knows how much I didn't know then because we've grown and matured. There's, There's a sort of trust that we have in God to lead the imperfect leaders that we have. That's really the essence of our faith. In some ways, it doesn't have anything to do with the government. What do we think of God? And do we think God can use foolish men and women in government to lead us? And though they fail, does it then derail God's plan? Is God's ways somehow just tied up in the hands of government? And who knows what will become of what God wants? No, God sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. And so as we look at this passage, Paul's really giving us this full change of life. He's saying that that now that we've been saved by the mercies of God, all of our relationships have changed. They've changed with ourselves. They've changed with others. They've changed with our enemies. Now they've even changed with the government. We can can take away. How do we view the government? We view the government as duly instituted by God with authority for our good. How do we respond? We respond with, with a right and discerning obedience. We pay our taxes. We give them due honor. We pray for them. We do good. And we, at the end of the day, say, God, you alone reign. And we rest in that. This will make us different from the world. And it will proclaim the gospel to people. Let me pray for us before we prepare for the table.